Okay, got it. Ready? <clears throat> You're listening to Paul Elmore. Paul Elmore. <laughs> Shh. Thank you for having me back this summer. Um, it is... It's nice to see lots of familiar faces. It's nice to feel welcome. It's nice to be on a journey with each of you as you kind of move along. This is... Um, I think I probably get more out of my times here with Refuge than many of you do. So I appreciate the opportunity to, to sit and to, to be with you guys. I, I really enjoy it. I don't normally do this, but let's do a little pop quiz. Oh, formal pop quiz. Painting, who painted that? Norman on the bottom. One of my favorite, paint, one of my favorite um, artists. He, um, we're talking about mirrors tonight. Week two, mirrors. That's why I chose this thing here. What do you think of, or what, 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 what does this picture evoke in you? You have to speak up a little loudly. Insecurity. Insecurity. What do you mean? Why do you think that is? Comparing, exactly. There you go. Looks like she's been spending some time trying to um, get her hair to do what it's supposed to do. How old do you think she is? Nine, nine. nine eleven, somewhere in there. Yep. As I've, as I've heard this painting kind of analyzed, it's kind of this conflict between here's the doll from childhood so she's still a little girl who wants to kind of still be a little girl and play, and yet here's all of these expectations. What era was this? What era do you think this is depicting? 60s, 60s 30s, that's kind of a spread. 50s, 40s. When was Joan Crawford big? Late 50s. Yeah, I, it's 30s or 40s, it's pre World War II. So this isn't new stuff that all of a sudden the, 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 late, the current generations are now wrestling with. It's been around for a long time. Yeah. Been around for a long time. But let's do a pop quiz real fast if we can. Which is not dependent upon our actions? God accept, God's acceptance or God's approval? Someone sum it up for me in 30 seconds. What's that mean? That one doesn't, by the way, answer. God's acceptance doesn't change. What's that mean? Right. It, it never gets any less accepting, and it will always be that way. Like God is forever loving. Perfect. And our and His approval is unconditional. Ooh. Unconditional. His approval is conditional. Thank you. God's acceptance, who we are as human beings, never changes. What we do as human beings, thumbs up, thumbs down. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. What was the story I told about that? Two cars, foot, son. Remember that? <laughs> Ran me over, stinking kid. He's the same guy who can't read problems, so that explains <laughs> it. <laughs> What's the primary reason we are so hard on ourselves? We're attempting to motivate ourselves. And when we do that, when we criticize ourselves, we tap into the bodies. 
fight or flight, or that's the defense system, the self-defense system. And um, that leads to? What's it lead to? Talked about depression last time, exactly. Beck's triad of depression. So we're trying to motivate ourselves while being hard on ourselves. Push, 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 and it actually triggers us into shutdown mode. We actually don't get better. Kind of unproductive and a waste of our time. I don't think we should do that anymore. What do you think? And then instead of relying on a self esteem, we can try self compassion. Someone summarize that for me in 30 seconds. Nobody look at me that way. I won't call on you. Treating yourself as if you're somebody else. That's a good definition. We should stick with that one. That's not bad. Someone else give it a shot. Building a relationship with God. Building a relationship with God. Yeah, but I think people who don't have a relationship with God can still have self-compassion. Would that be fair enough? Building a relationship with yourself. How, what kind of relationship with yourself? Loving. Loving relationship. Yep. Accepting yourself, faults and all. Being compassionate to yourself. Yeah. Being compassionate to yourself is a good definition of self-compassion. It's not based on performance or anything you do. It's, it's not, not based on performance or anything you do. It's always there. Mm. It's always there. That's, that's good, too. One more. Mindfulness. Mindfulness. Yeah, that's part of it. Someone took notes last week. Very, very good. Um... Oh, that's the answer. Women typically find their sense of self-worth in looks, appearance, physical appearance. Men typically find their sense of worth in performance, skills and abilities. Um, came across this one. Seen this one? Again, I don't know how much we can trust them anymore, <laughs> since we know they're ulterior motives. If you want a super cool sociology experiment, take a camera into a preschool, and what happens? You're swamped. It's, it is just like craziness. Everyone is on you. Take them into kindergarten, what happens? Still get a lot of kids. First grade, second grade, Maybe, maybe not. Third grade. What happens? 
how in the world does that happen? Because they capture it great. These little girls, you know, look at me, I'm a princess. You know, look at me, I'm a ballerina. I won't model that for you, that's weird. But remember, was it last summer? I had you guys turn your chairs and just look at each other. Was that last summer? Two summers ago, something like that. That was mean. That was just mean of me because I made you guys not be be able to do all of this stuff, right? Being seen, that's just scary and difficult and hard. My hope is we should do that on week eight. We gotta see if that's easier for you guys on week eight. Turn your chairs, just look at each other. And see what happens. See what it stirs inside. For some it might be easier, for others, might not. We should have the ladies do that, and the guys can go out back and shoot hoops or something and see who can put them <laughs> as many in the bucket. Because that's, that's where we get all insecure. I can't shoot it. Fake an injury, pull the hammy, clean all that stuff that we do. Um, how is your self-image shaped? We're going to, before we look at how to change our self-image, that's going to be next week. We're going to start on that, spend a couple weeks on that. How does it get shaped in the first place? How does it get built? There's a process. Again, when we are born, we are not actually blank slates. We're not actually neutral because we have personality and genetics and sorts of stuff like that. So some, some little kiddos are, are more outgoing and some are more internalized and stuff like that. But in general, okay, just broad strokes here. When we're born, we have unlimited potential. It's fantastic. And then something happens and it's our self-image starts to get shaped. That is what we're gonna be wrestling with all night tonight is kind of where that comes from. So we're gonna be looking a lot, uh, we're gonna re be rewinding the clock and looking back at some of, the, some of the older stuff. Before we do that though, we have to, we have to talk about some brains, okay? Each of you have one and each of you have them built in roughly the same way. Um, and it's going to be important to understand kind of how our brains work and why they work before we can look at how your self-image is, is, is shaped. To um, make this work, we need a golf club. Because if you explain brains without a golf club, it just doesn't make any sense. This is your brain on golf. Um, our brain is made up of three parts. So picture this as kind of this core inner deep part of your brain. Um, oftentimes it's called the reptilian brain because it does inner core and then kind of spinal cord, um, central nervous system going down to your arms and legs, okay? This is the most rudimentary part of your brain. It's called the reptilian brain because it is only worried about, well, it's worried about the same things that lizards are worried about, okay? Um, Eating, sleeping, fight or flight, being safe, and sex. Right there. Golf club's responsible for all of that. <laughs> Didn't know that, did you? So, so I don't know if how many of you raise lizards. We have a pet snail right now. Somehow we ended up with a pet snail. His name's Salty. Um, no joke. We actually have a pet snail. My son and I were hiking up on the mountain by our house and the snail was walking across the path and we, it was just cool. So we picked him up and he lives in a thing now. So, 
you can't make a relationship with a lizard. You ever try to get warm and cuddly and fuzzy and you know have the lizard look back at you and wag its tail when you come home? Snakes, they just don't do it because they don't have the capacity for that because this is about all they got. Again, eat, sleep, fight or flight, sex. That's right there, that's the good stuff. Next part of the brain is like a sleeve or a sock that goes over it. It's called the limbic brain. And this is what all mammals and um, lower mammals, dogs, cats, horses, I almost said butterflies, those aren't mammals. Um, this is the part of the brain um, that allows you to be able to make relationships. It's interested in, um, it, it's able to bond. It's able to have feelings. This is your part of the brain where your feelings live, okay? The ping golf cover, that's, that's, the, that's the limbic system. And then finally, we have this new part of the brain called the neocortex that lives on top of all of that. And that part right there is the rational thinking part of the brain. That's the part that is able to process information, that's able to anticipate. Um, it's actually the part that is, regulates time. It, it, it's, it's able to say um, cause and effect, all those kinds of things. So the helmet's what? Neocortex, new cortex is what neo means. That's what part? <laughs> Limbic brain, and that is the reptilian brain. Okay, well done, well done. If we wanted to see it, and it, again, this is a super, super simplified version of it. This is what it sort of looks like more accurately. You have this new part, this red part, this is the neocortex. This part here comes wrapping around inside and then the back part of the brain wraps up underneath here and then goes down into that part. Most recent studies are saying three and a half million synaptic connections are being made every hour, every day, for as long as you live. We are taking trillions of these little brain cells that live in this little piece that's powered by bologna and string cheese, okay? And it is making connections over and over. It is constantly learning. It can't help but learn. Many of you think, I can't change. I can't adjust. I beg to differ. Three and a half million connections every time. Some of you made a connection last week. I mean, every hour. Made a connection, room's hot. Lots of people, um, I'm uncomfortable. You learn something. So you come and you sit in a different place or you bring a fan or you do something to adjust, but you're learning. So that's our brain. Makes sense? You wanna hold the brain? You can be the brain, bearer of the brain. You don't have to hold it up like a banner or anything, just don't let it fall over. Perfect. Why do we talk about this? Why do we need to know about the brain? Because when we are itty bitty little critters like that, see what, why do you do that by the way? Thank you very much, someone said it. What part of the brain goes, aww? It's not this part of the brain. Yep, and it's not this part of the brain, the limbic part of the brain, the part that creates relationship. And I want you to notice that you don't have to be trained to do that there is that resonance that goes inside of you that says, there's something I need to take care of, I need to protect. I mean, that's just cute. Little guy, wow. all naked and tiny. 
Did you know, did you know that this little guy right here, for six months, that red part of the front part of the brain isn't even turned on. It's growing, it's developing, it's, it's doing some stuff, but it doesn't have any impact on his life. What part of the brain is this little guy working on for the first six months? Reptilian, he's already born with it. That's actually fully developed because he knows how to sleep. He knows how to cry when he needs something. He don't have to teach a baby how to cry. Ready, go. And keep going all night. No, you don't have to teach a baby that. When it's hungry, when it's scared, all of these things, it, it's programmed to this. Reptilian brain, dialed in. What part? Thank you, the only part that's left, okay? Limbic. A young infant, a young child, is doing nothing but creating relationship. It is actually, its whole, its whole purpose in life is to learn how to feel. Imagine that. This, this would have changed the way I parented if I knew some of this back when it, you know, I had a chance to actually do something about it. The only thing that this little baby is learning about is how to feel. Now, how many, how many people, uh, don't raise your hand, please, okay? <laughs> Rhetorical question. Um, how many people have seen somebody somewhere treat an infant as if the infant is doing something to purposely, intentionally inconvenience the adult? They're crying, they're crying now, and the baby chose to do it because they know that I gotta get to work, and they know that I'm running late, and now they're doing it just to piss me off, right? As if it's somehow of a choice. What, what choice, what part of the brain do you have to use to make that choice? Neocortex, red part, right in front. And that's not even working yet. Babies at this age, again, infant, before six, seven months, they're just reacting. They are just living. They are just needing to connect. That limbic brain is just growing and, and connections are being made. Millions, millions at a time, every hour. Loving your kids is not enough. Doing the things so your child feels loved is the most essential. For those who are writing it down, I'll let you get it written down. I don't have handouts, sorry. Very important delineator here. Loving your kids is not enough. A lot of people say, I, I love my kids. I'm, I'm doing loving things for them. But that actually doesn't, am I allowed to say that? That actually doesn't matter. What matters is doing the things so the child feels loved. You gotta learn how to speak the kid's language, not yours. Not yours. Essential, essential in, in growing kids up here. I want you to imagine there are two moms, okay? Let's stick with um, mom number one. As, as mom is giving little baby a bath, Mom is very aware of what the experience is, what the baby is feeling, and so as, as she puts the baby in the little bathtub, little water drips down his tummy and it tickles, and so he starts to giggle and smile and laugh. 
and she responds to that by smiling back at him. And little baby sees mom's face light up, and what happens to the little baby's face? Lights up too, and, and puts water on his toes, and he kicks his toes, and she, she encourages him and, and engages with him, and she is dialed in. She is attuned to that baby. Now, let's take mom number two. Mom giving baby a bath, or let's, let's imagine um, a feeding baby. Let's sit in there. Um, and baby's safe. Baby's cuddled and warm. Bottle in the mouth. But mom is... Text. Text, 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 text. Send. Oh, Facebook. Cool. Look at that. Reading a book. Bottle pops out of the baby's mouth. Pulling it back in, right? Is, is the baby safe still? But what's, what's, what do you think the experience between the two babies is going to be? How, how might they become different? One's going to be attached to the mother and one's not going to be. Let's tweak that just a little bit. <coughs> Let's assume both are going to be attached, but there's different kinds of attachment. Would that be fair enough? One can be in a secure attachment. One can be an insecure attachment. There's several different categories of attachment. Yeah? Do you have time to show that little clip that was so impactful last summer on that? The little clip that was so impactful last summer. Are we talking about the still face about experiment? Yeah. That made people cry. <laughs> it was a good clip. Um, maybe next time. Okay? I have it, but I want to honor your guys' time. What else do you think the difference would be? Yeah. I feel like one, the one baby would understand its individual importance more. Tell me a little bit more about that. I like that. Well, it would, it would sense that, that it was intrinsically important to its mom. With its front cognitive rational brain, I now understand my mother is responsive to me, and I, I can now individuate. It, it, is, it isn't a choice, but I would agree. It's a feeling. They start to understand their world very differently. Was there a hand? Yeah, I was about to say kind of the same thing that you did, that we're designed to understand who we are by people's reactions to us. Yes, and that's why the night is called mirrors. That's why we're talking about mirrors, because children only learn about their value through the reflection of others. Yeah. someone who's safe, someone who I, I, I'm drawn to. And again, that drawn to, that relationship. You can have a really good relationship with a dog. In fact, sometimes dogs are, or pets are the safest people to relate to in a family that's kind of unsafe. 
I've heard that several times, but it doesn't have the intentionality behind it. It has more of a reactive. Dogs have that limbic brain, but they, but they don't use it in the same way that, that advanced primates, that's us, human beings, use our, use our brains. Self-image is taught through a wordless language. It's because, be fair to say, in fact, if you try to teach kids how to speak before six months, how productive is that, typically? Because again, where does the speech, where's the speech center in the brain? Neocortex up here. They're, just, they're not ready for that. That part of the brain just isn't physically developed yet. They can't do it. But they absolutely can start to communicate, can't they? Boy. That's why I, I, whoever did the whole baby sign language movement that's going on, that person's brilliant because, because you're able to, to be aware of your physicality, your body, and communicate that way and use it actually productively before speech is, is developed. So self-image is actually taught through a wordless language. The way that you view yourself, all of you are sitting in here as adults except for, oh, he's gone. Where's... where's Gone. Okay. Corbin. Corbin. That's right. I was going to say Connor, but Corbin. It's been fun to watch him grow up, too, by the way. Um, we're all adults, and so this is how you guys learned. All of us did. None of us have memories of it, because, again, that part of the brain wasn't developed yet. But if you were to just sit back and to evaluate and wonder, wonder what kind of messages I got wordlessly when I was growing up. And I wonder if some of that has an impact on how I view myself right now. Just want you to wrestle with that idea. Self-image is taught through a wordless language. Verbal, nonverbal communication. I keep coming back to this stat. I think I've told it every summer so far. Um, how much of it is verbal and how much of it is nonverbal? Percentages. 70 30. No, thanks for playing. 80 20. Keep going. 90 10. Let's try 93 7. That's the next case. 93% of all meaning, and this is some great studies out of um, uh, UC somewhere, California. Uh, tone of voice. Body language, intonation, um, facial gestures, all of that is the meaning is conveyed non-verbally. The words we say don't carry as much weight, which means most of the communication we have with children, it can be unbelievably effective. The little smile you give them, just the focused attention, just the, I actually pay attention to you. I actually know who you are. I'm going to be real careful here not to preach. Um, <sighs> it's going to be hard. Um, having children, I wish there was. <laughs> Can you tell I'm dancing up here? Um, <laughs> I wish that it required more um, requirements 
before you could actually have a child. You, could, you had to understand some of these things before you did it. And you had to sign a, a little thing that says, I recognize that I'm going to have no social life for two years. <laughs> I recognize that I'm going to have to turn off my computer and not be on Facebook for a majority of my time because this little iguana that I just gave birth to is needing some attention and focus, and this is the most important thing in my life. The privilege and the responsibility of raising kids is, is a gift. And, I, and the reason I'm being so careful is because I didn't know some of this stuff when I was raising my kids. There are, we could talk for the entire two hours, and I could tell you mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake. And there's many, many times that I wish I could go back. I... I can assume that there are some in the room here that would like a do-over as well. I'd like you to be kind to yourself. I want you to be gracious to yourself and say, I'm learning it now and I can start to change some stuff. Because again, we, we change, we adjust. We aren't permanently broken. And so if you miss some of the stuff with your kids, you can have a do-over for the most part, maybe. This might be directed at somebody, not you. Okay. Maybe she can answer it for me. Uh, don't you think that maybe your children can learn more from your acknowledged mistakes than they would have had you not made that mistake in the first place? That's not the not subject, though. The subject is the 93%. That's a good question. Don't go there. It's a good question. Yeah. So much, so much healing in the, in the relationship that it was like, not that I wish that they had necessarily made a mistake, but yeah. I don't know how to explain it. Yeah. I think that the times when I have made a mistake and I've caught it quickly afterwards, and I went to my children and said, I was wrong. You were right. I was wrong. Modeling yeah. that imperfection, self-compassion, um, uh, acknowledging that their feelings and their opinions are, are matter and I'm willing to be wrong in that actually might be more shaping than being perfect all the time. Which again, whew, good news because I've had to apologize a lot. Yeah. I'm curious when, before the six months when the emotional yep. video brain kicks in, right. if a child's learning that the only time it feels loved is when it's kicking and screaming, right. Is it able to comprehend that before that emotional brain kicks in? It comprehends it um, in a behavioristic cause and effect sort of way. So if I get certain kinds of attention, I behave this way. If I get certain kinds of attention, I behave this way. Um, again, really fascinating studies with um, orphans that were in um, Romania and that they were given they were given physical needs, diapers changed, food, those kinds of things, but they were left for hours in cribs with no, no intentional interaction. And that's where attachment theory, that's where they actually learn, I cry, I cry, I fuss, I, I whine. Nobody, nobody comes and meets my needs. 
this 93%, I'm screaming, and nobody's responding to it. So they actually learn about life. I can't, nobody is ever going to meet my needs. And that gets kind of hardwired into the brain, mostly. And they have a hard time being able to attach to anybody as they grow up because they've just learned in that limbic portion of the brain that I, 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 relationships don't work. And, and so that's when you hear attachment theory and, and kids who are or have a difficult time attaching to adoptive parents and things like that, it plays a lot into this. This isn't an attachment class, but it plays a lot into this. So yeah, we learn a lot by, in that time frame. Attitudes and actions are the most influential. Have you got the message yet? Have you figured, kind of we hit this enough here? It isn't the words you say, it's the behaviors you do towards these, towards these kids. It's the behaviors that were, were given towards you when you were growing up. No child can see himself directly. He only sees himself from the reflection of others. Anyone want to take a stab? What do you think that means? Labels, how you label a child. The way you would, like you did this well, or this is how you are. Okay. So children don't have the ability to be aware of self. They have to learn physical awareness as well as like mental and emotional awareness. Um, so their only clue about who they are is what's reflected back to them. Okay. To a child, yeah, go for it. When your child looks at you, if your whole face lights up when you see your kid, it communicates so much to them. That's what we're really talking about. Yeah. You are so fabulous to me. Yeah. Communicate that to me. Yeah. And it isn't an egotistical, selfish, wow, look at me, I'm awesome, my mom's smiling at me. It isn't that. It is just, I'm valuable. Someone is responding to me positively. Your reflections are the first impression that any kid has that your child has. The, the, the reflection that your parents gave you is what started to build your, your, con your self-concept. That's where it all began. Um, children value themselves to the level that they have been valued. If they have not received that attention, if they haven't been demonstrated non-verbally that you're worth my time, you're worth my attention, you're worth my focus, then they start to learn, again, not cognitively, but re, 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 relationally, word disappeared, <laughs> relationally, that I am important or not important. Um, and by the way, here's the good news. This is a consistent kind of thing. If you become human and you just blow up at your kid every once in a while, that one time isn't going isn't to permanently scar them. Again, you have a chance to apologize, ask forgiveness if they're older, and you, know, you can have the conversation. But you, one, or, one or two kind of situations isn't going to make it or break it. It's this pattern. It's this long-standing relational style. Again, kids are made out of 50% rubber. They, they're just... I'm really glad, actually. <laughs> My daughter sitting right here when she was an infant well shoot two stories we were talking this week 
She's my first. I didn't have that booklet that I wish that every parent had to get before they have a kid and sign away those documents. And so I was new to this whole parenting thing. And when she was just brand spanking new, I mean, just still squeaky new, um, my wife and I were, were going somewhere and we got to the place where we needed to get to and my wife realized she had forgotten something and it wasn't too far from the house. So it's like, all right, honey, you go ahead and stay here. I'm gonna just, I'll run back to the house, I'll grab what we need and I'll come back and meet you in 20 minutes. So, drop off my wife, I take off my daughter in the car seat is sleeping, sound asleep in the car seat right behind me, okay, driver's side. On the way home, running to get what I, what I need to get, I realize, oh, I'm gonna go right by wherever uh, this place, I need to stop and pick up something real fast. And so, pull in, park, jump out, go get what I need from the store, five, I shouldn't be recording this, should I? <laughs> I'll edit it later. Um, run into the store, get what I need, come back out, jump in the car, drive all the way home, and when I pull into the driveway, my daughter stirs. <gasps> and that instant, my stomach knotted up and I couldn't breathe because I had just blatantly forgotten that I actually have a daughter. <laughs> Left her in the car, and I didn't even remember I had one until I got home. I, mean, I, just, I, know, just, I was still, you know, young married guy, and I just, I didn't remember that I had a kid. <laughs> Scared the crap out of me. Because I realized, oh my gosh, what did I just do? I can't believe it. It takes a while to, to remember and learn all of these things. And again, kids are 50% rubber. Fortunately, I don't think she even remembers that, and so I can get away with it. So, But my wife, <laughs> okay, we both have our stories. <laughs> Honey, I'm sorry. Um, Michael was in the little papoose thing on the front of the car and all of that stuff. We, um, my wife was preparing dinner, and she um, needed to get, can't believe this, needed to get a, something out of the top shelf on the kitchen, and as she did, she knocked a jar out, a jar of chicken tonight, okay, remember that stuff, chicken tonight, okay, off the top shelf, where does it go? Bonk! Bounces off her head, <laughs> screaming, yelling, crying. Again, they're made out of rubber. They, they bounce back literally. It's a good thing. Our doctor, when we actually got a checkup, our doctor said one of the most common accidents with kids was when they're in that whole front papoose thing, people closing the trunk of their car. We didn't do that. Chicken tonight, that's all we do, chicken tonight. I'm not gonna be here next week. Child services are gonna come pick me up. It was nice spending time with you, thanks. Shoot. I only take consolation and I know some of you could um, tell better stories. So, and once kids start to develop words, once they have the ability to speak and they comprehend those words, um, 
then our image of them, what we are reflecting back to them, actually becomes more perfect. It becomes perfected. Um, whatever the child hears, they believe. They don't have the ability to cognitively ration out, wait a second, my mom just responded to me this way, or my dad just said this about me. In all of the life experiences I've had so far, I've had enough evidential experience over here to realize that my dad's probably having a bad day right now, and doesn't actually mean that, and, and I can go ahead and you know, grant him some grace and all that stuff, and I will be okay. Kids don't do that. As soon as you tell them how you see them or relate to them in that way, that's what they believe. They don't have any other information to kind of process that on. Is this starting to make sense how our self-image, how our self-perception gets, gets kind of created in all of these experiences while we're growing up? Until what age? Till what age? I'll answer that in just a minute. Kids see parents as all-knowing. They actually see us as God-like, which is scary. Um, you can uh, read the story about a family driving down the road, um, kind of dusk time, and all the houses, the kind of the curtains are drawn, but you can see light shining through. And the kid, four-ish years old, asks dad, hey, dad, what are those people doing in those houses over there? Dad goes, well, I don't know. And the kid says, how come? You should know this. Because for a little young mind like that, they actually believe that parents are all-knowing, that they know what's going on all the time. And so they can see through drawn curtains and walls, and they have all the answers, which is actually kind of fun to mess with kids, because they ask you questions, and you give them really crazy answers. It's not very nice. Ducky bread. In our house, we don't have cornbread, we have ducky bread. Because it's yellow and it's made of ground up little ducks. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm gonna get picked up. I am just not coming back. Oh man. They believe that these all powerful gods treat me as I deserve to be treated. Therefore, what they say about me is what I am. If I have the power to see through walls as a parent, if I have that superpower and I know everything about everything, then the, the way I treat my kids, the, the things I say to him or her, must be true. How can you question the gods? Isn't that amazing? We wield tremendous power over the shaping of these little hearts, these little minds. Which is why I think in Scripture, some of the harshest criticisms come for people who do not treat children well. All this happens, age five. And by five, kids are smart, aren't they? I mean, some kids can read, some kids can do all sorts of neat stuff. They, by five years old, that, that new part of their brain is, is growing pretty well now, and they're able to kind of do cause and effect themselves and plan ahead and, you know, tie their shoes and, and, and choose out the clothes that they want usually, and they still can almost get them on right and all that stuff. Um, but they still see us as these all-powerful gods. Now, 
Um, interaction with just family isn't the only thing that shapes us. We have society that we live in. We are um, part of a flock. And how we fit in with, with that kind of crowd will also then start to reinforce what we have learned as these little itty-bitty babies. Um, naturally gifted kids, unfortunately, the reality is if you are naturally gifted, again, some of that genetic stuff, or if you've already been kind of shaped or molded into doing things really, really well, you will, in society, probably be favored. I wish it wasn't true, but the reality is that if you're struggling, well, what happens with kids in school if they're struggling? They get picked on. They get picked on. What else? Teased. Behavioral issues. Special tutoring. Special tutoring, I heard facetiously in the back. Ride a different bus. Yeah, ride a different bus. And you. And even if that isn't. It's, it's still nonverbal and it's still soaking in and it's still creating that reality. Take a seat further to the back. They don't get any positive reinforcement. They don't. Some of the people that I have the greatest respect for, truly, I know a couple people right now who understand children and how they think and how they operate and sacrificially give of themselves to shape these little minds and treat them as they deserve to be treated who have the ability to see the behavioral problems, the inappropriate actions that they do, and they know the underlying causes and stuff, and they say, the behavior I don't approve of, but you as a little human being, I'm just going to love the heck out of you, and I'm not going to let you forget it. Those are, those are people that I admire the most. They are truly, truly amazing people. They should get paid a lot more. Let's try this. That was fun. Yeah. I'll walk. I'll take Carlos. Yeah. You know I crap him up. Richie. Yes. Cindy. Yeah. Hey, this your first time playing basketball or something? No, I played four years in college. Where? Harvard. Adam, I'll take Adam. <laughs> okay. Mikey, no arms. Mikey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, you guys got Mikey. There's like nobody good left now. Um, that dog you play basketball on. <laughs> okay, that other dog. The one that doesn't play basketball. <laughs> Former NBA star and current gym custodian Sean Kemp. Can you watch this? Thanks. Yeah, I'll pass. Sean Kemp's rolling garbage hands. Yes. <laughs> you know what? Yes, I went to Harvard. And yes, I'm an Asian American. And, and sure, I may not look how you think a basketball player should look, 
But you know what? I'm good. And I work hard. And when you and everybody in this world finally decide to look past who I am and judge me by talent, listen, I'll make it in the NBA. I'm going to make it in the NBA. Mom and Dad say you have to move off my couch. <laughs> I won't ask how many of you were picked last, but it's very lonely. Questions at all about any of this so far? Thoughts? Why was the dogs chosen before the janitor? <laughs> That's a good question. Anyone else? Yeah. That's a great question. What are the methods to unlearn some of these things? Guess what the rest of the time is going to be spent this whole series? Because it's, it's not an easy answer. Um, and that is probably, if I could figure out how to make that easier, I'd write that book and retire. I wish it was the, and, and there are, go to any self-help section, and there's about 14 dozen books on how to do it. Um, it's a fantastic question, and we're going to wrestle with that the remaining weeks coming up. So you just have to wait one more week and still feel bad about yourselves, and then we'll <laughs> worry about it. All right, anything else that we're going to keep going on here? I'm a little confused by that video. Confused by the video? It was to make you laugh and tell you that society and how they view you can shape who you are. It had absolutely no educational value whatsoever. <laughs> yes, it did. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. It showed how they elevated Sean Kemp's self-esteem. <laughs> basketball player, yeah. who is now a school janitor, yeah. was picked before yeah. the That's right. <laughs> so they elevated his self-esteem and his roller, you know? <laughs> yeah. I can still tell you the name in fifth grade that I was given by the other kids because I did one thing, one time, really good. You want to know what it is? In fifth grade, when we were playing touch football on the field at recess, I got, I was taller than most of the other kids. I snagged one interception. And from then on, I was called Interception Man. <laughs> That's me. And I can still remember how that felt. It was sweet. That's how it is, yes. One thing. One little word. I can also tell you many other things that, that were said about me which have stuck as well and have created 
additional feelings, but not on the same end of the spectrum. Interception Man, right here. That's what I'm going to put next time as I get to speak. Presented by Interception Man. All right. Let's move on to, oh, kids create self-fulfilling prophecies. Meaning, I'm Interception Man. Guess how well I played the next time. Oh, man, I was on fire. I was taking dives and risks and all sorts of things because I already had the label. I was awesome. And I actually did really, really good. I created my own self-fulfilling prophecy. <coughs> Mixed message trap. This is... Um, how do kids primarily learn the self-esteem, self-esteem verbal or nonverbal? Non-verbally. Kids get to be smart, they start to grow up, and the neocortex starts to kick in, and they start to be able to put cause and effect together. Um, it starts, you know, starts to grow six, seven months, and it gets really, really good, and it gets kind of solidified by five, six, and then, you know, it grows through other stages there. So um, eight-year-old Billy comes home from school. Eight-year-old would be third grade. Eight-year-old Billy comes home from school. He's had a great day at school, walks into the house, and mom is sweeping the floor and mom is ticked off. He can just pick up that vibe. He knows mom is not happy. Billy, Billy's concerned. You know, it's my mom. I I don't like it when she's not happy. So, goes up, mom, what's wrong? Mom's answer is? Very good. We now have the mixed message trap because... Billy's, Billy's whole language is nonverbal, and her 93% of her communication is saying what? I am angry, I'm mad, I'm upset, something's wrong. And her verbal now says what? Nothing's wrong. <laughs> well, children take it one step further. Children now go, something's not right here, and I'm confused what it is. I probably did something to make this happen. She probably found the whatever in my bedroom, or I forgot to do this over here, and so she's mad at me. That's the only way kids have to get out of this mixed message. They don't don't like incongruity, and so they have to somehow find solid ground in that, and so the way they make sense of that is there's something wrong with me. I must have done something to cause this. How, how painful is that? I mean, that's... So what's the solution? How do we fix that? Communication. Communication. Kids always give preference to the nonverbal, by the way. This is what the best gift that we can start to do with our kids is we can start to be honest with them. So, but that honesty has to be wrapped in um, living a congruent life and temper openness with appropriateness. Mom doesn't need to sit little Billy down and say, well, let me tell you what's going on. Um, I had a squabble with a neighbor and then it's over this and this and this. And, you know, it's this big, huge explanation that Billy will never understand. Instead, for mom to be congruent to live a congruent life, what would it sound like? I just feel angry right now, but 
There you go. It's not at you. I'm having a bad day right now. I'm so glad to see you. I'm glad you're home. I want you to know that I have feelings like you have feelings, and I'm just, I'm angry right now. It's going to take me a little while to kind of get my emotions back together, but I'll be all right. That also reinsurance of, I'm not swamped in this. I'm not lost in this. This is some of the painful um, consequences that I sit with many of my clients who grew up with parents whose emotional regulation was non-existent. They might not have been directly hurtful, meaning they weren't physically abusive, they weren't overtly dangerous, but because the parent's emotional distress was so, you know, wackadoodle that the, the child, my clients, learn there's something wrong with me and I got to somehow keep this emotional chaos wrapped up in my world. It gets overwhelming. Yep. Did I hear a but, but? Oh. Okay. <laughs> so living a congruent life and being honest, but tempering it with uh, appropriateness. That mixed message trap, again, starts to shape how we view our world. It's how, it's how it, it, it shapes our reality in some way. Mixed messages are, are unbelievably confusing. How to help a child feel loved. How? How? And feel. Big, important words right there. Because it's, again, more important not just to love a child, but to do something that makes them feel loved. So, how do we do this? Well, first we're going to define love as a genuine encounter with psychological safety. Doesn't that make love sound wonderful? <laughs> Little Billy, I'm giving you a genuine encounter so that you are psychologically safe. <laughs> That's right. I love you too, Mom. Genuine encounter, again, is that focused attention. Um, and this, this plays into not just infants. Huh. I heard today, heard today in a class, um, one of the most requested services that um, higher-end prostitutes are asked to perform is to pretend that they are the, the man's girlfriend and that they love him. They have to pretend to be a, a loving girlfriend. That's what they want. They're willing to pay for it. That action, that, that interaction, children all the way into adults, we want this focused attention. I sit with couples all the time. And these couples are, have a difficult time spending 10, 15 minutes a day actually focused in, dialed in, and paying attention to what, well, what is actually your world about? What are you feeling? What's going on? What's happening in your world? Giving that focused attention is really, really hard. This is a fantastic, fantastic definition of love. It is, I'm going to give you all of my attention for a period of time. I'm going to, I'm going to step into your world and try to understand you where you are at. I'm not going to try to change you. I'm not going to try to fix you. I'm not going to try to make you a different person. 
I'm just going to soak you in. If we could do that, man, couples counseling would be very different. Very different. Children are programmed for inner presence. Without it, time together is wasted or even harmful. Yet how frequently do we give presence versus presence? How frequently do we give things rather than us? That's what they want. Well, that and a pony, but um, yeah. once they get this, then they want the pony. Is that making sense? People are aching for it. Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> which is, again, tragic, tragic. It's being alone in a sea of humanity. Yeah. <coughs> Another study I heard today, it was a good day of learning stuff. Um, I wish I, I, I meant to ask the professor the, where he got the study from, so I'm gonna, I'll give this tentatively, but I believe him because he's a smart guy, okay? Um, a study out there that says um, children in a divorced home fare better when they have a father who is emotionally engaged with them than a child who's in an intact home, but the father is emotionally distant. Don't, that's scary to admit, but that, that's how important <coughs> presence is. And again, we, we come, many of us in, in, in this audience right now are coming out of a generation where men genuinely believed as long as I put a roof over their head, food on the table, and, and you know, get them into college, I've done my duty. Right? And we can't fault them for that. That's, that's the best they knew how, but it still probably was missing some pieces for, especially the men in the room here. Okay, ladies don't listen for a minute. Guys, we crave that acknowledgement from our dads. Dad issues all over the place right now. If we could get that resonance, that, that interaction, it would change an entire generation. Okay, ladies, you can come back. The opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. <laughs> I had a client whose um, mom was emotionally working through her stuff, still trying to find her value where in how she looked. And so instead of buying a family car that all the kids could fit in, she bought a sports car. Literally, there was not enough seats to transport the children, my client, from point A to point B. So he ended up having to sit in the cargo space of a car. <laughs> and as we talked, he said, 
she wasn't overtly, you know, mean or dangerous, but it was like I didn't exist. And that's where the wound, that's where the pain lived in her, in him. Indifference. Say it again. Fear of acceptance. What do you mean? You mean indifference in the sense of fear of acceptance? I'm not sure I'm tracking. Like, if you're afraid of accepting something, you're indifferent. Yeah, yeah, that would be it. All right, take a deep breath for me, real fast. We're coming up on the end here. Yep. Everyone doing okay? These are all experiences. Verbal or nonverbal, which carries more weight? Nonverbal. Kids learn about their values through the reflection that we give them, attention. Instead of indifference, we are tuned in. There's one more piece to kind of make this, to make the layer, um, kind of make this whole complete on how our self-image and our self-perception get shaped. Um, and that is, how do we transfer value and worth? We cannot actually be taught values. They are caught. I'm going to say it again. Values cannot be taught, or being valuable cannot be taught. It is caught. I can't... How do we teach it? Catch it? Uh, whenever I hear this, I always think of Ford families and Chevy families. Right? Uh, growing up in a Ford family, what would happen if you show up in a Chevy truck? Whew. Your values are Fords are good, Chevy's bad. Don't you dare ever buy a Chevy. Right? And then if you grow up in a Chevy family and you show up in a Ford, oh man, that's like cardinal sin. But you aren't ever, I mean, you might be told about it, but that's not where you get the values from. They are caught. You, the nonverbal is very, very loud. If you drive a Chevy, don't bother coming home, period, because you're going to be, you know, excommunicated. You're not going to write you out of my will. They are caught, not taught. And our value, not just values, but our value, again, that nonverbal stuff. Self-concept has to have a context. So, um, if I were to take one of you and say, you are, you are, you are an incredibly, um, what do I want to pick here? Um, you are really boisterous. Okay? And I say that to you. You are really boisterous. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? We have a depends answer, context, because um, if you're in a family that says, oh my gosh, that boisterous kid is driving me nuts. By the way, kids hear through walls, don't they? You think they're not listening, but you say something to your spouse or your partner or the neighbor lady, they hear those things. So my boisterous kid is driving me crazy, good or bad. The value attributed to that, to that characteristic is now negative. 
Or you can have a family over here and go, you are so boisterous. Man, look at you. Good or bad thing? Good thing. So the characteristics, the things that we say to kids aren't, they, you always have to figure out what is the context? What are they coming in? Because you can throw labels or even talk about behavior, but the value that the child puts on the thing is going to determine how it shapes its self-concept. Tracking with me? Does that make sense? It's really fascinating because many, many things are neutral. You're funny. You're smart. You're witty. You're all these things. But I can say that to some of you, and, and you'll be happy that, that I said it to you, and you'll be going, oh my gosh, I can't believe. He, really? He thinks that of me? Oh, man. And, and you cringe. has to have a context. Um, words are less important than the judgments that uh, accompany them. So, if we look at what value does a child place on the words, here's how this works. You're impossible, if we say that to a kid, Johnny, you're impossible. Or we can say, you're having a hard time obeying today. What's the difference between those two sentences, those two phrases? One is a judgment of character, and one is talking about his action, his behavior. One tells him it's temporary, and one tells him it's time. Ooh, one says it's, that's even good, okay? <laughs> I told you, there's got a room full of smart people here. I love this. Permanent, temporary, time factor. That's nice. What else? What's the difference? Yep. Yep, that's right. And this is changeable. Yeah. This is labeled. One says, you're, one says you're done, the other says you got a chance. There you go. Yeah. It's even sympathetic. You're having, yeah, empathetic. You're having a hard time obeying today. This is variable. You're impossible. Some kids might go, yes, all right, I'm impossible. And other kids might go, oh, that's just one more thing I get to add to the list. You're lazy versus you haven't done your homework yet. Again, value versus behavior. You're a bad boy. Or you forgot to pick up your toys today. Yeah. The first ones are charged with emotion. Yeah. Yeah, objective. That objectivity is therapeutic, isn't it? Big time. Yeah. I also could be like, well, you're smart for my mom, and I can, you know, go to school and you're smart in hands, and you change your character because then you're not accepted because of that. Yeah. So it could be the same statement. Yeah, absolutely. And what happens, to even tag on that, if you are every day at home, you're hearing, you're lazy, you're lazy, you're lazy, and 
not only is the words, but the emotion, the intensity behind those words are now congruent, and, and that's, that's what the, ch the kid is actually starting to learn. And then you go to school, and the teacher says, you are so smart. What happens then? If only it were so. I'm smarter than the work I have to do. That's what they might start to learn. When we start to have this, again, if this is a, a, a scribe, a negative context, a negative value, then it actually becomes harder for anything positive to even start to soak in. It starts to become solidified, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's, if you really knew me, you just need more information. And then I'll prove to you just how lazy I am. <laughs> you laugh, but that is absolutely true. I have, I have sat in my office and taken notes for 40 minutes with a client who has spent the entire time convincing me how bad they are. And at the end of 40 minutes, I take the notes and I turn it around to them and I say, you've just convinced me how bad you are. What if I choose to ignore that? What are you going to do then? And they go straight to the, well, let me just give you more information. I'll come back next week. <laughs> and I'll come back with, with you know, visual aids. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, you could say the second statement was a really harsh tone of voice, and it would be far from neutral. Absolutely true. The, we're implying that, that this is said with empathy and kindness, but you're absolutely, absolutely right. But you can say it cynically or sarcastically. Yep. And it would, yeah. Because, again, nonverbal always trumps verbal. The tone, the implication. Yeah? But it's, it's like the gift that keeps on giving. Um, <laughs> you know, when they're trying to motivate you with this way of communication, then later when you're giving yourself the self-talk yep. for motivation, yep. That's You've learned well. Negative exactly. You've learned well because, because exactly. I, I'm, I'm even going to suggest, if I can, I think most parents are trying to help their children become better. They just suck at it. They just, the methods that they use, um, I'll, I'll, I'll admit a little, little, personal pleasure that I have. I absolutely, absolutely love Caesar Milan. Anyone know who Caesar Milan is? Dog Whisperer. Okay. Um, elegant show. If anyone's a counselor in here, watch the first three or four seasons and take notes on every episode. It will transform the way you do counseling. Okay, I shouldn't tell you that because I treat my clients like, no. I am not doing good tonight. I'm just going to get in trouble all over the place. Um, his, his phrase is, 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 I train owners, I rehabilitate dogs. He has to help owners understand how to, how to speak dog, how to communicate in the way that a dog understands. And when you do that, guess what? Dogs love to obey. 
Dogs love to become really, really good dogs. But he spends a lot of time working on that communication way, how you communicate it. So parents, again, I think parents are genuinely trying to get the best out of their kids. They just do not use the best methods. And so all of you who are learning this right now, lots can change for your kids, for your grandkids, for your neighbor's kids, for every kid that you see. You can start to treat them very, very differently. Um, I talked about it, I think, a couple summers ago, um, but it's, I came up with something called the purple bumblebee syndrome. It's a clinical diagnosis for those who are wondering. Um, the purple bumblebee syndrome. Who should I pick on? <laughs> What's your name? Malia. Malia. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to squeal, so I'll, I'll insult yeah. you from here. Okay. <laughs> Malia, with all the venom, with all the vice, with all the hatred I can muster, I'm going to look at you and say, you are nothing but a giant purple bumblebee. <laughs> People are laughing at my insults. People, and you're smiling. Have I, have I crushed you? Have you, are you, not yet. That doesn't hurt you. Why do you think that is? Why doesn't the fact that I insulted her and called her a giant purple bumblebee, why doesn't that hurt her? There's absolutely no truth or even possibility of truth. There's absolutely no truth to it. She doesn't go around going, am, am, am I a purple bumblebee? I think I'm a purple bumblebee. I woke up this morning, I, I feel like a purple I, I really think, I hope nobody figures out that I'm a purple bumblebee. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you're a purple bumblebee. Shoot, I knew it. Doggone it. Somebody else sees this, this fear, this, this, this belief that I have myself. For insults, whether they are verbally or experientially, for them to stick, there has to be a pre-existing negative belief already floating around. So, if you have the, the negative belief of I'm lazy up here, and then your boss shows up and goes, really? That's when you're showing up? Really? Good grief. That exchange confirms the negative belief, which is wonderful news. Because if we can change the, the concepts, the self-concepts, if we can address the negative beliefs we already carry around, then we can start to put up shields around either verbal criticism or experiences that could be potentially criticizing towards us, right? We are not stuck. We're not dependent upon how people treat us, how people think of us. We're not helpless to other people's whims. That's why this series is so important, because I want to change that, those pre-existing negative beliefs that are already floating around underneath. There needs to be a pre-existing negative belief present for criticism or negative experiences to create emotional discomfort. Even if I don't approve of your behavior, no matter what you do, you will always be accepted. If you walk away with one thing tonight, this is the message, this is the message that your kids need to hear. This is the message 
that you need to hear. Even if I don't approve of your behavior, even if mom and dad didn't approve of your behavior and their actions, words, no matter what you do, you will always be accepted. And I think for those in the room that are believers, because we have already received that, we know what that feels like from an all-knowing God. Because we can't pull the trump card and say, well, if you just knew me better, he already knows you better. And he still accepts you. And so because we have already been accepted, we have permission to first accept ourselves and then accept other people around us. This is what I think kids need to hear over and over and over and over until their ears bleed with it. And not just hear with their ears, by the way. They need to hear it in the words and the actions and the thoughts. Yeah. I would say even as a believer, um, it's still hard to believe yeah, that. It is. Even I can tell other people yeah. that with complete confidence. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Welcome to the conundrum. That, that's the distance between here and here. Technically, it's the difference from here to there, the limbic brain, <laughs> if we're going to be, you know, precise about it. Say less, do more. That's what I want you guys to do. What I wish I had known before I had kids that I know now. I wish I had known that my children's behavior was a language, that their actions and words were telling me something about what they were feeling and thinking. I wish I'd remembered that they did not get up in the morning plotting to do things to frustrate me. <laughs> I wish I'd known that meltdowns and explosions usually meant my kids were tired or hungry or bored or frustrated themselves. I wish I'd known that they needed an adult to help them find the words to express what was troubling them. But they sure didn't need a frustrated adult. I wish I'd known more about child development, brain development, and behavior. I wish I'd known that growing up is a slow process. I wish I'd known how each development stage has its own way of seeing the world. I wish I'd known that most times they saw things very differently from me. I wish I'd listened more to what was true about their hearts and spirits and personalities than worrying about what other people thought about their behavior. Came across that the other day, and it's like someone just read my mind and posted it online. I wish you'd bring up, print up copies and bring it next week. I will make that available for you. Could you read the last line again? I wish I'd listened more to what was true about their hearts and spirits and personalities than worrying about what other people thought about their behavior. That embarrassment factor, kids are embarrassing. <laughs> they say things and do things and bodily noises come out of them at the worst possible time. And I get very worried how I look. I wish I'd known that most times they saw things very differently from me. Dad comes home, daughter is four years old. Dad knows daughter loves to draw, loves to draw. Has a big, huge sketch pad. 
kiddo, here you go. Daughter squeals with glee, yes. And so runs into the dining room and starts to color. Hour later, little girl runs into where dad was. Hey, come, come, come look at the picture I drew you. Come look at the picture I drew you. Comes into the dining room and on the wall, <laughs> on the paint, is this beautiful mural she's drawn, four years old. Dad's first reaction is what? I just bought you this paper, I just got you this stuff, and you still choose to draw on the wall, blah, 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 right? Tear starts to stream down her face. She goes over to the table, and she goes, but Dad, I used all the paper. <laughs> Kids see the world differently. And I wish that we could stop and go, okay, let's get into their brain, four-year-old little brain. What are they thinking? How are they doing this? Everyone doing okay? Okay, take a deep breath. It's going to be fun to change, I promise. It's going to be really, really good. Next week, why don't we talk about how to change negative self-image. Would that be all right? It's only going to take the first 10 minutes, then afterwards we'll just hang out and talk. And then we'll play games. Got a couple games that might be fun. <laughs> Questions or thoughts at all, and then I'll let you guys go. Yes? At the beginning of, a, of your presentation, you had a sequence that led to depression. There was about three things. Sequence that led to depression, three things. Yeah, was that Beck's depression triad? Why do we self-criticize? From last week. Yep. They are, just so I get them right here. Um, for depression to be present, um, you need to see the self as worthless, the outer world as meaningless, and the future as hopeless. Is that what you're talking about? Okay. So you're talking about the cycle of self-criticism, yeah. his motivation, and then... Why do we self-criticize? It was in your right. quiz. Was it in the quiz. Well, let's go back. Yikes. Let's see what happens. I'm going to mess that up. Oh, it didn't turn yellow. Okay, this is where you get really unprofessional and you get to see what it all looks like behind the scenes. Motivation, like that? So, motivation, when we criticize ourselves, we tap into the body's self-defense system, right? Is that what you're talking about? That leads to depression. Aww. Instead of relying on your self-esteem, we can try self-compassion. That was last week. If you missed last week, if anyone missed last week, you can actually go to paulelmore.com, and it is on the first post on that. You can just listen to it. You can stream it from there. You can download it from there. Or if you want to download it, um, my podcast, which is on iTunes, um, should have available there as well. Okay? Yes, question. <laughs> I'll work on it afterwards. <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah. Uh, do you happen to have the author of the I Wish I Had Known? I do. Author is Don Hallman, H-A-L-L-M-A-N. I will, um, as I 
take tonight's and I put it into a podcast and I post it on my website in the next couple days, I'll have that on my website as well so you can take a look at that and have access to that. D-A-W-N. Paul Elmore, Paul, P-A-U-L-E-L-M-O-R-E dot com. You're welcome. Or do a search under that name for on iTunes. Yes. As crap. <laughs> In quotes. Loving your kids is not enough. Doing the things so the child feels loved, which is the limbic brain, is the most essential. We'll go past that. Go. Thank you. That's brain, baby. There it is. I made it up. Um, I can get the author for you. I don't have it written down. Yeah. I wonder if you're going to be talking next week about dealing with the, the task of disciplining kids and setting limits on kids because if you don't do that, you're doing a disservice, right? Absolutely. Yeah, permissiveness is one of the least loving things you can do for a child. Being overly permissive. Yep. Would that be the presence versus presence? I think you can still be present emotionally with them but too much. Actually, when you start doing things for them that they need to be doing for themselves, you create an unhealthy dependence and reliance upon you instead of themselves, which handicaps them even more, which is, again, disappointing. All right, ladies and gentlemen, well done. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like more information, please visit paulelmore.com.